Now there's no clock up here, no clock back there, so, um, and I am sort of a time-challenged person, so I... <laughs> not that I'm challenged by time, it's just I can never read my watch very correctly, especially when it's on 15 time zones away. But, um, so I'm extremely pleased to be here. I've always wanted to come to Australia ever since when I was a, a little boy, my favorite uncle decided to, uh, what's the word, emigrate? Or is it emigrate to Australia? And, um, and so he became a journalist in Australia. And I think some of you may have heard of him. His name is Gerald Stone. <laughs> and I know because... <laughs> and I understand he has a somewhat controversial book that has just, just appeared. But anyway, uh, and I'd always heard about Melbourne, how this is like one of the most sort of livable, desirable cities anywhere. And that's been confirmed um, in my mind over the last two or three days that I've been here. Uh, every moment that I've had when I'm not here in the gallery, I've been out walking around just absorbing the city. And um, I, did, you know, I wrote my wife, I said, let's move here. I'm <laughs> completely fallen in love with it. And uh, I have to say, like the other night, we, I was at some event here at the gallery. And um, so then I left. I don't know, it was about 9 or 10 o'clock. It was probably 10 o'clock, after 10 o'clock. So I'm walking across the bridge and looking at the Ferris wheel with you know, the beautiful pulsations of light and the massing of buildings, the architecture, and everything's reflecting in the water. And I just thought, this is so damn beautiful. Now, that's actually the theme, or in part, the theme of my talk today is what's wrong with beauty? Beauty is a very, um, sort of, has been a bad word in modern or sort of contemporary art for the last, well, at least half the time in this show. It, are you aware of that? Yes. Um, and, you know, there, there are things that one could say that, that beauty has sort of disguised a lot of the inequities in, in the world, a lot of the misjustices. Uh, a lot of people who absorb themselves in the pursuit of beauty or the larger sense, the, the pursuit of happiness, have, um, in a sense, blinded themselves to you know, injustice, as I was saying, to, to other social problems. And so I think there's been, deservedly, a real suspicion of beauty in uh, the art world, particularly an art world concerned with finding ways to improve the world. Um, and beauty is something that's often associated with tourism. And here I was, a tourist, walking around enjoying the city. So it was legitimate for me to uh, enjoy the beauty of the city. But consumerism, beauty is something that, that drives um, in a good sense, it drives the economy. In a bad sense, it drives people's materialism and greed and um, problems associated with that. But what I'm, I'm not even going to be talking about beauty per se. What I, as you know from my title, I'm interested in misery and happiness. <laughs> and as I was thinking about this talk, I was thinking, beauty, by the way, is something that art historians and art critics, I'd say over the last 10, 12 years, there, there have been efforts to rehabilitate beauty or the discussion of beauty in art and to say, look, let's not throw out one of the most important categories ever associated with art just because of the sort of problems, political problems associated with it. 
And, and that's being debated back and forth. But so far as uh, I know, nobody is even making an attempt to rehabilitate happiness. <laughs> that is like the real poor cousin that's, um, that I would say is repressed in discussion of, of modern art. There used to be a time when, in fact, much of art was associated with the search for happiness or the pursuit of happiness. Uh, this is sort of a long-winded uh, prologue to a talk I'm not even going to give. But <laughs> and I'll explain that in a moment. But Okay, here I was in, um, back in the States about a month ago, and I got this wonderful invitation to come to the storied land of Australia and speak on this Guggenheim exhibition. And Valerie very kindly sent me a PDF file showing these absolutely illegible uh, little images of what was going to be in the show. And it was alphabetically arranged by artist. Now, if you're an art historian, that's not very helpful to see, you know, like 85 names in alphabetical order. There's no, they weren't grouped in any way that I could make sense of. And um, and as I say, I couldn't even see the images that were associated with this show. But wanting to come to Australia, I said, okay, I'll do it. I'll sign on the dotted line. And about a day later, I got an email from Valerie saying, I was just heading out to lunch, and I got this email from her saying, oh, and by the way, uh, this was a Friday afternoon. She says, the NVG needs the title of your talk by Sunday. Now, I didn't even know what I was, you know, I mean, I had no idea what I was going to talk about. And, uh, and meanwhile, I was about to go on a short little vacation with my wife. And I knew she didn't want to talk about this all, all weekend, but I, but I had to come up with the title. So I went to lunch and looked, looked through that PDF file and Many of the names I didn't even recognize, but I do know something about some of these artists. And the words misery and happiness kept coming into my head. And I thought, well, you know, I'm one of these people who sort of goes with the unconscious. And I said, all right. Well, I threw together that title, and I thought I'd better write a talk that goes with the title. (laughs) So that's sort of what I've been up to lately. (laughs) However, I, got, I you know, got my feet on the ground. I, I landed in Melbourne uh, Wednesday, very rainy day, if you may remember, very sort of like gothic winds howling and everything. And I came over to the gallery, and I started walking around the show, and I thought, i got to throw out my talk, because now I can see the art, and it's really fantastic. And it's actually, it's beautiful to use, you know, that, and it made me happy. To see it. And, um, and, and I, I would say that the talk that I prepared, I'd stand by it. I'd still say you'd find, I hope, would find it an interesting talk. Nonetheless, having seen the images Wednesday, Thursday, yesterday, um, what I wanted to do was respond specifically to the works of art that's you know, just down the corridor here. So, uh, yesterday afternoon and all last night till about 6.30 this morning, I've written a completely new lecture. <laughs> so, I, I don't intend to fall asleep while I'm speaking, and I, don't, I hope you won't either. But um, I hope you'll at least forgive me if I can't remember what images come next. 
because I've just been sort of fiddling around with them. Um, and these are actually two images that are not in this show. This Picasso and Matisse. But I'm going to use those as images. I just wanted to start off with images of a time when, um, well, maybe not everybody back when these images were created thought of them as beautiful. I think now with our, uh, Jared and I were talking at lunch about taste and changing taste. I, I find it would be difficult for me to think of anybody today that would look at these two images, uh, Picasso on the left, Matisse on the right, and not find them just succulent, desirably beautiful images. But even there, I use the word succulent or delicious. Those are culinary terms, which you can understand why people are sometimes suspicious of beauty discourse because it makes it sound, uh, it, it brings, in some people's minds, lowers art to a less than um, cerebral level and makes it just seem like something that's about gratification of the senses. And as I was saying earlier, that's suspect in a lot of uh, uh, camps. Um, this Torres Garcia image from 1942, an image I didn't know, uh, I think is just, you know, it's, I find it a very happy type of image, a very Paul Clay-like. Um, Valerie, I think, compared it to Mondrian this morning. But there is a kind of childlike uh, simplicity here with the, the sun is shining, a, a star is beaming, there's a heart glowing over a factory smokestack, a fish is, is sort of floating through the sky, uh, and the bottom, you see trolley cars with commuters going off to work or going to their homes. And it seemed to me an image of a kind of utopian world in which nature, industry, the urban life, the animal life, is everything is in some kind of balance and harmony. Let me jump back here for one second to say that from my original talk, what I wanted to discuss was the fact that in the Enlightenment, um, this is practically the 4th of July, as you know, big American holiday, Declaration of Independence, where Thomas Jefferson says that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, which is, you know, parenthetically, was not acted out exactly in the, that society. Nonetheless, um, but we, we hold these truths to be evident that, that all men deserve the right to pursue life, liberty, for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that was a really epic-making statement because really never before in human history had people expected that a government's job, a society's job, was to guarantee, if not the happiness of its citizens, their right to pursue their happiness. And it seems to me that's one of the inaugural philosophic concepts of modern art. Even though we think of modern art as not really getting started until, say, the 1860s with Manet, uh, Olympia, Dejeuner Solaire, that sort of thing. But really going back to um, David, Goya, Turner, there was a notion, really for the first time, that an artist had the right to pursue his or her own vision rather than that of the patron, be it the church, the state, uh, you know, the military. Uh, so I would say that that notion of human happiness as being something that is a right for individuals to pursue is 
at least in my mind, a sort of intellectual historical way of thinking, something kicks off modern art. Now, what was I going to say? Oh, so anyway, so I'm just going to show you a couple different images of, uh, or different ways of thinking about happiness. The last painting I'm saying shows a kind of utopian community. For me, when I look at Kenneth Nolan's trans shift, it elicits a very uh, strong sort of elated feeling. This is, I, I, won't, I won't go so far as to say this is my favorite object in the exhibition, but I have, it's called trans shift, but I found myself transfixed in front of it. Uh, it. It really rewards extensive looking. It's so optically uh, powerful. And so the wonderful contrast between straightness and jaggedness, between um, unprimed canvas and rolled canvas, uh, the way that colors of various forms of blue and green interlock, nestle in within one another. It's just a hugely enriching um, <coughs> experience, optical experience, and something that comes out of the Enlightenment that, am I talking, is this okay if, if I talk about this? You all right? Okay. I think I'll have a drink of water. Let's see. Of course, Immanuel Kant, being one of the central figures in the Enlightenment, Kant was saying that what constitutes beauty, what constitutes a true work of art is something that has no sort of mercenary connections, no practical utilitarian value. If it had utilitarian value, according to Kant, then it, you know, it may be worth a lot, but it can't fit into the category of art because art has to be that which removes you from the world of the mundane, of commerce, of everyday life and puts you into some kind of transcendent experience. There's that word trans again. Um, and so I would say that in a kind of latter-day Kantian way, what Kenneth Nolan and the colored field painters were achieving, and I'm going to like deconstruct this later in my talk if I ever get there, but um, that there's sort of this Kantian enlightenment ideal of, of sheer beauty that isn't trying to sell you toothpaste or get you to mount the barricades and fight a war it isn't trying to get you to support some political party. It's all about just that pure um, personal interactive experience your eyeballs are having with this um, substance or combination of substances in front of you. These, these are two other examples for me um, f- from this exhibition of work that fits into that category that would seem to be about nothing except themselves in a way that Kant or his latter-day sort of greatest expositor, um, Clement Greenberg, would have understood and appreciated. Now, for a different view of happiness in art, as I say, happiness becomes suspect, sort of post, particularly post-Greenberg. These images I'm showing are the the Kenneth Nolan was 1964 in the, in the U.S., right around the time of the Civil Rights Movement and the Vietnam War and the Vietnam War protests, is when uh, beauty, per se, beauty in and of itself, became incredibly suspect in a lot of people's minds. Um, and so the next artist I'm going to show you is sort of 
let's say, a post-beauty artist and a, and a post-happiness artist. Uh, now, it seems to me Jeff Koons here is mocking consumer-driven happiness and fast-food happiness. He's, he's sort of making fun of the notion that you can slam down your... Uh, I was just talking to somebody about lunch about it. Was it called a 4 and 20? You know, th- you know, it's sort of that equivalent that you can just pay up a, a little bit of money and eat an industrial, industrially produced product and then have a little happy glow in your stomach. And it becomes a metaphor... I think, in looking at this work for society at large, consumer society at large, and its problems. Now, somebody in the show who I think has a very different notion of happiness. Oops. Okay. Is uh, Sarah Johnson, who we saw earlier, a uh, wonderful talk that she gave before lunch. And uh, in Sarah's work, and she talks about this in some interviews I've read that that tree planting experience for all the sort of the bug bites and the you know hurt fingers, smashed fingers and, and aching backs and the love life issues that, that went awry, uh, there's still a utopian quality of people coming together for a legitimate social product and making something happen that, that needs to happen. And I think that, to me, that her, her show, the Tree Planting Series, is about the possibility of, if not complete utopia on Earth, a sort of a, a glimpse of utopia. And it also has to do, going back to the Enlightenment, in my mind, with Goethe and Rousseau, the notion of a recovery of innocence by going, or if not recovery of innocence, a sort of ability to sample some sense of innocence by leaving behind the corruptions of the urban environment and spending time in nature. So then, uh, in throwing all this together, I, I put together three different, very different views of nature. Sarah Ann's, that wonderful shot with the backlight, backlit starlight and, and the, the young women camping out in some kind of communal bond with Nam June Pikes, uh, this, this slide we have here is not nearly as interesting to look at as what we have in the forecourt of the NGV, but he really problematizes the whole notion of nature, of a Garden of Eden, which is infested not with bugs, but with television sets, uh, with people globally grooving and beating drums and things like that. And then... Uh, I, I would call it a really dystopian view of nature, of happiness, or the possibility for happiness is this untitled shot by Cindy Sherman showing a dismembered female body, or we presume it's female, but if you look at it, you'll see an ear here and some fingers there and maybe a mouth, and then you see that compact mirror with some staring eyes, and it's not really clear, Valerie and I discussing whether the eyes belong possibly to the phantom serial killer who dismembered the young woman, or as I tend to think of it, it's actually the ghostly afterlife of the person herself who has been dismembered. And dismemberment um, is sort of the opposite of happiness. (laughs) (laughs) 
And, uh, you know, I, I think misery is, be, be, as happiness has sort of flown out the window in modern art, misery has made a really strong, uh, you know, its stock has gone up. It's okay to be miserable uh, in your way of depicting the world. Uh, although the whole notion of being a miserable artist, that's become passe. You know, if you're a good artist now, you should be like Jeff Koons and wear a business suit, make a lot of money, or use Prozac or something. But you know, don't follow the road of you know Medigliani or Jackson Pollock. Uh, so I'm just showing you Cindy Sherman. And oh, gosh, you know, like tell me, do I have to quit now? Okay. Um, the the, the four part of my title, finding our way. The reason it came to me, I'm sure, is because when I look at contemporary art, I'm often lost. I don't know what to make of it. And there's so much, you know, my first experience and second and third and fourth and 25th experience often is, what the hell is this about and why am I so stupid that I don't get it? So I think I'm probably not the only person who has that experience of feeling miserable Myself having a crisis of confidence in myself in the face of art that can be very challenging. And, you know, there's the sense of, wait a minute, am I stupid or is it stupid? You know, are all these people who are going around yakking about how profound it is, are they the ones who are real phonies or am I the phony? Because, you know, here I got a PhD in art history and I can't figure out what the hell this is about. <laughs> And I would say that a lot of modern art, and I, and I really mean this in a serious and good way, that a lot of modern art, avant-garde art, from the late 19th century on, has been about making the viewer miserable. Not in a sadistic way, or perhaps in a sadistic way, but in a sense that in order to come through to the other side, to have that experience of enlightenment, that you have to sort of work your way through the forest. And if you don't work your way through the forest, if you're not challenged by the art and made to suffer, then you're in the equivalent of the person who's eating the Jeff Koons bologna sandwich. You know, just grabbing it, sticking it in your mouth, and then going on to the next thing. And I think a lot of modern artists have been about um, blocking that experience, preventing that experience from happening. So it seems like, um, as you say... Okay. Well, one other thing I'm just going to say about this subject before moving on. Oh, and I have these pictures of Pollock up here because he is sort of, in my mind, the embodiment of the miserable, suffering artist who was constantly tormented with insecurity about himself and his work. Although I could have shown this other wonderful hands name of photos of him splashing the paint around and he looks exactly like you know, a kindergartner in play having the time of his life. So I think that that is a sort of happiness moment for an artist or for any of us is being fully engaged in the moment. This is going to be a little parenthesis within a parenthesis within a parenthesis here which is what I'm trying to say what am I trying to say is that Happiness and misery, they're dialectically intertwined. You can't have one without the other. And that I think that a lot of the experience, and I've sort of been talking about different facets of modern and contemporary art that touch upon 
happiness or misery or both. So what I would not want you, my class, to uh, come away you know, writing down in your notebook is, well, first there was happiness, and then they got rid of that, and then there was misery. It, you know, it's not. It's that these things are sort of battling their way out. They're, they're sort of each artist is working on these issues, and each, each viewer of art is also working on these issues. And I would say, I'm sort of preaching to you, giving you advice, but I would say that when you go into an art gallery or go in to look at this exhibition here, you should just sort of say, wait a minute, how does this make me feel? Does it make me feel good or does it make me feel bad? And that is just a starting point. You're just sampling the weather and your, your own emotional weather. And then you kind of ask yourself, well, it's making me feel good. I'm, I'm sort of smiling, looking at this. Well, why? What is it? in the art that's on the wall or my interaction with art is inducing this feeling in me. Or maybe it was the wine I had at lunch. (laughs) Maybe it had nothing to do with the art. And the same way, if I'm feeling uncomfortable, if my feet are really hurting, is it because I've been standing too long? Or is it there's something that's really prickly and emotionally, um, you know, um, hostile about this work that I'm looking at? So I would say just try to get a reading of your own temperature. Of course, this is the great blue poles, and to me, this was is Pollock is a wonderful way of giving a visual sort of ideogram to that notion of finding your way. Because when you look at his skeins of paint, you get lost in them. You try to sort your way through them. You try to see: does this line lead to this, or does it link? lead to that? Is it a dead end? Does it take me somewhere? And, um, and I, you know, basically, I think that's a very good experience. Now, here's somebody who seems a bit baffled um, by a, a Pollock knockoff. This is, I, you may know, a Norman Rockwell um, Saturday Evening Post cover that he did in 1960. And Norman Rockwell, of course, who's known as being sort of the bad object in all histories of modern art, you know, there's like Pollock is the good object, Rockwell's the bad object because he's so aiming to please the the viewer. Um, but I, I, what I love about this image is that uh, Rockwell showed he could do a pretty good Pollock knockoff <laughs> when he set his mind to it. But the real issue of finding your way is not simply about. Um, you know, you or us, the viewers, finding our way through the confusion, or the artists such as Cindy Sherman or, or um, Sarah Ann Johnson or Jackson Pollock, do you like being in that company? Uh, <laughs> uh, finding their way through the experience. It's really, and going back to the Enlightenment, a notion that art, if it's going to serve any social function at all, art should be helping us as a society find our way to a better, uh, fairer, more just world. And for me, the image that and, and title from modern art that really sums this up is Gauguin's uh, Where Are We? Where Do We Come From? No, what is it? Who Are We? Where Do We Come From? Where Are We Going? And I put these two together because I think each in its own way is, is saying that same thing, that, that we need to sort of sort through the mysteries of existence, and that that's 
that that is the most important role of art. It isn't simply about making you feel good or making you stimulating your mind or um, you know, um, being beautiful like the wallpaper. Uh, it's about motivating us as individuals to think collectively about the society at large and to, to really, hopefully, uh, to do something useful about it. Okay, now I'm going to actually move on to some of the objects in the show. <clears throat> Valerie was talking today, excuse me, about um, you know, these two Giacometti's and the Noguchi in terms of sort of the post-war angst in Europe. And people always talk about that. I mean, that's sort of a standard and correct way to understand what artists like Giacometti were all about. But in my hotel room last night, and you know, I was getting on the internet and trying to pull some images that I thought would support that kind of connection or, or, or spell it out a little bit more closely. These, these uh, I would call the misery side of things. Um, so with the Giacometti standing woman, uh, of course, you know, there's thought about starvation and particularly Holocaust starvation. And I, and I think that whether I, I could say this like 40 times through the rest of my lecture, whether the artist was thinking about it or not, I think that these kinds of images, this kind of visual culture was ambient. It was all around and an artist can't really, no artist, no, no matter how hermetically into his or her own world that artist is, no artist can be um, non-affected by the larger visual culture. And so those are a few things I'm hoping to trace here. Okay, this is wonderful. Um, you know, the, the, the nose with that, Valerie compared it to the, the screen by Munch. But as you look at it, it's the first thing you really see when you come into the show. I'm sort of struck by the fact that that head is hanging from a rope. And here's a German officer um, supervising the hanging of two young um, Jewish resistance fighters. And then, of course, the Maurizio Catalan image that concludes the show. He's also hanging um, from a you know, an armature, and I thought I'd throw that together. And then Noguchi, yes, you definitely think the scream, and I'm looking here at a, we're looking here at a medieval gargoyle uh, to, to sort of talk about these, uh, you know, just the expression of utter abjection and agony. Now, this, I, I like showing Pollock this big because this is about 20 times larger than the painting you're going to see in the room, and I know from being an art history teacher that students, you're always, people are always fooled. Slides, reproductions really throw things out of scale. Um, now, Pollock, like Giacometti, like um, Noguchi that we were looking at a moment ago, people have often talked about abstract expressionism, and our next um, speaker is a real acclaimed expert on that. Oh, I just realized there's a watch here. Uh, <laughs> but it's too small for me to read. <laughs> um, but, but, but so Pollock is often, in, in abstract expressionism, is seen as a kind of reaction to World War II, a kind of anguished cry 
about the war. In this case, this is 1943, I believe. So it's, it's pre-revelations of the Holocaust. But, um, and, and this, I thought I would compare it for a moment to Rubens, to a, a Rubens war scene, the Battle of the Romans and the Amazons. And now people have compared Rubens and Pollock before, but I just wanted to, um, so here's a, a little detail uh, I don't know how this thing works. Well, oh, never mind. I'll go. I'll just forget it. Um, but anyway, so I just am throwing to the wonders of PowerPoint, throwing together Rubens and Pollock, having them collaborate on an image for a moment. And then Motherwell, the Elegy um, to the Spanish Republic. Is it Elegies to the Spanish Republic? And I was thinking, as I was looking at those objects, they're like right adjacent, practically adjacent in the galleries. And I was thinking, although they're both very expressionistic, they're both very powerful, um, Motherwell seems to me neoclassical compared to the Baroque energies of the Pollock. So last night at my hotel, I was thinking about that, and I put together a sort of famous neoclassical work of the 18th century by Benjamin West, showing a funeral procession and um, looking at the sort of the structure of the architecture in the background um, sort of calls out to me the, the um, structure of the Motherwell. By the way, just tell me, please. It's 2.15. When, do I, when am I supposed to quit? Um, 2.20. 2.20, all right. <laughs> okay. Two thirty. Thank you. Uh, so the, here's this um, mist by um, Adolf Gottlieb, and again, I thought Valerie did a wonderful comparison of it today. The sort of color discussion of it, the color field, upper portion of it, and the more gestural, dark, heavy lower part of it. Um, this was in I think he did this in 1963. Earlier, Gottlieb had actually made. Um, a much more, it's a, an image that he called Blast from 1957 that shows this fire cloud of red up at the top and this huge uh, smoke billowing, spilling out down below. And yeah, he's living in a world in which people are, are very f- fearful of thermonuclear disaster. Oh, I, I know. This also, though, I think of this image missed. As I was looking, I kept thinking about environmental disaster. And now, I don't know if you see it this way, but it, it sort of reminds me of a sun being blotted out by just these, this sort of thick layer of smog. I, actually, I was just in China very recently, and so uh, some of the cities I was in in China reminded me of, of this kind of thing where I couldn't see the sky. Um, and because of the industrialization. So I was saying, so Gottlieb did this painting in 63. In 64, the great Italian filmmaker Michelangelo Antonioni made this masterpiece film, Red Desert, his first color film, about the industrial wasteland and sort of environmental destruction. And he uses that as a metaphor for personal emotional destruction, or those two are very much interrelated. So you see... Monica Vitti and her child standing in front of a power plant um, just sort of um, eviscerated by the, the smog. 
Oh, now, this Helen Frankenthaler, I have to say, okay, this is great work. I was really happy to see it. Am I the only person in the room who sees a face in the upper, sort of that dark cloud up there? Yeah, yeah, looking down. I've decided it's Jackson Pollock. (laughs) Yeah, okay, good. I'm glad that I wasn't totally having the DTs when I solved that. Um, Okay, now, I've got to get serious here, so I'm going to take off my jacket because it's getting hot up here. I'll try not to remove anything else. So the Morris Lewis painting, Saraband, 1963, a Saraband is a dance. Uh, J.S. Bach has music with a Saraband. You think of it as a very stately, classical, uh, orderly type of music. And this is Colorfield painting at its kind of supremely most non-referential and just formal, and even to call it after a piece of music is to suggest that it's completely non-functional, non-utilitarian. It's completely about feelings and saturations of of colors and optical experience. It also reminds me of neckties hanging together or silk scarves hanging together. But more than that, and now here's a comparison. I couldn't find the images I was looking for, so these, these will have to do. You know, it, it has the kind of structural integrity of the nave of a Gothic cathedral. All those sort of bays receding back, and there's a kind of, um, you know, this, this structure within it. But also, as I look at these, like, figures, these, not undulating, but these hooded figures, I was thinking about um, Franciscans. And the sort of the quality of those heavy robes and seeing a relationship there. Now, what does this have to do with happiness and misery? I'm not sure. Well, we can talk about St. Francis and, and both those qualities, which I won't go into. But I'm just, I'm, I'm free associating here. And, and I hope that you do too. Um, just because I think, you know, to, to look at the Robert Morris is also a kind of... Um, well, again, I was thinking of the, the Franciscan robes, that um, sort of burlapy quality, that heavy uh, quality. And the way the Morse hangs down, and again, the Catalan, the way he's kind of bending over. So these are all, to me, in this kind of visual continuum. Okay, now Olitsky, Jules Olitsky. Now that, even more than Morris Lewis, seems completely totally, defiantly abstract about nothing other than the fine particles of mist rising through the air in this kind of pure confection of color. Although he calls it Lysander. So I had to look up Lysander. Do you know who Lysander was? Well, he was in Plutarch's life. He was basically a bad guy. He was a Spartan. He was an admiral from Sparta, who defeated the Athenians. And then there were a series of rebellions against him because he was such a cruel taskmaster, cruel person, and there were rebellions. But he was very much a military figure. And I was thinking, why would Olitsky give this a military name? You know, Lysander, that sounds, you know, just nice. 
I don't know, like Sarabande. It just sort of sounds like something old and elegant. Um, but then, so, so, okay, so I was thinking about, well, when did he do this? He did this in 1970. Uh, and, you know, yeah, you, you certainly see how he's coming out of Mark Rothko, how he leads into Dan Flavin. But it also seemed to me, 19, late 60s, um, oh, actually, well, okay, good. Does anybody know what this is, what they're looking at? This beautiful spray of color. Sorry? It is, yes, it's an explosion of John Kennedy's head. From uh, It's an extreme blow-up from the famous Zapruder film of the Kennedy assassination. Um, and it's... It's, it's a blow-up of that frame, the, this infamous frame, I think it's number 314, where the second bullet hits the president. Um, and now I'm talking about Jackie and, and Warhol, but I'm just going to run through this very quickly. Although, I don't know if people have ever... I always wonder if Warhol's gridding of the Jackie images has anything to do with the fact that he got those images from Life magazine, and it was Life that laid them out in this kind of grid format. Obviously, the grid is important in contemporary art, uh, independently of life. But anyway, to go back to Olitsky, um, it seems to me that Olitsky's paintings, it's, it's just wrong, or not wrong, but it's not enough to talk about them as Clement Greenberg did and as everybody has ever since in sheerly formal terms because he is producing the art at a time when the society is literally going up in flames. So I'm comparing it here to this film that was, you know, Coppola's film made in 1979 about the Vietnam War. But it seems to me that the title Lysander in a context of Vietnam when America is engaged in um, a war in a foreign land uh, using its navy and its air force a great distance from its own country is perhaps more relevant as is, again, this atomic bomb blast. Or in the late 60s in the U.S., many cities went up in flames. Uh, here's a picture of Time magazine from Time magazine showing Detroit, the conflagration in Detroit. And Olitsky made his paintings at this time by using aerosols and spray paint to, uh, to create this fine mist. And so I'm just comparing it to the firemen trying to put out a fire in the... Uh, Worst hit part of Detroit. Um, okay, just uh, let me just. Okay, just gonna jump ahead here. With with Coons, basically, I'm somebody. I'm, I don't really like Jeff Coons. I always feel a little revolted when I look at his work, but that may be in what he's intending. Um, but it is kind of funny, and you look at this. It's, it's like looking at Etretat or something. I mean. It, we're high up looking down over these mountains of candy bars and strudel at this natural beach that seems to me pretty much polluted or, or deformed by this kind of mass industrial food that's in the foreground. And I look at the, the woman's hair, which is sort of whiplashing around, and, and it seems to me that Coons is having fun there. Uh, referencing Pollock's whiplashes, skeins of, of paint. The Lucio Fontana, uh, I think, I don't know, if, well, Valerie made another comparison, but when I look at Marina Abramovich's belly 
incised by broken glass. I'm thinking, you know, as Valerie said, she's using her own body as a canvas and is um, cutting into that and sort of showing the underside of it, literally as well as metaphorically, in the way that Fontana does. As um, this, again, this is sort of like an incredible image that you cannot see from a slide. That's why I couldn't write this talk until I actually came and saw the objects. Um, because you see the, what do you call it, the viscera, the, the guts are literally spilling out of this image. And then there's this wonderful um, landscape photograph by uh, Elgar Esser. It's so minimal, but it's optically, there is a kind of slit in the, a horizontal slit in the, the whiteness of nature or anti-nature. I'm not sure how we'll compare it. Oh, yeah, and then I thought this was a great image. I mean, all, all those uh, Sarah Ann Johnson images are great, but this cut through nature that we are looking at today was definitely making me think of this, um, her, own, her own Noland moment. And I'm just about at the end of my slides, I think. Oh, yeah, because yeah. Throw in Picasso here, the George Siegel of Picasso's chair. And I'm looking at the chair and, of course, thinking of various Picasso images with chairs. But I was also thinking of this famous chair, which is the electric chair, which is, was invented in 1922. And, um, of course, Andy Warhol has fun with the electric chair and aestheticizes it and uh, abstract expressionizes it in this particular silk screen from um, the Electric Chair series. But what, what Warhol doesn't do is actually show you what, it, what goes on in America, uh, an electric chair. I didn't actually have a picture of a, of a person being electrocuted, but this was as close as I came to it. Any view we have in our society of happiness today, it has something to do with consumption. And you know, maybe one of the big social quests we have is trying to figure out how we can limit consumption. How consumption, as we were saying earlier, consumerism drives economies, um, helps good things happen, helps build beautiful museums and beautiful cities and give people employment. But overconsumption ruins the environment, ruins us. Uh, leads to wars where people try to steal oil from other people, and uh, there's you know all, all kinds of bad things happen are driven by overconsumption, and and it seems whether Valerie's intending it or not, or whether the artists in the exhibition are intending it, there's a real sub theme of consumption and overconsumption going throughout the show, and I'm just going to show you a couple images. We've already looked at Kuhn's and, and um, Felix Gonzalez Torres's public opinion. She put a very positive spin on it that he um, was saying each little piece of candy is like a vote. You should take a piece of candy so you can contribute to the, you know, collectively we can do something good for society. Although I can't get past the fact that it's candy for God's sake. I mean, we're not giving out food. We're not giving out something really substances. We're get, substance substantive. We're giving out sugary junk that ruins people's teeth and makes them obese and 
Uh, you know, is that like the Coons bologna sandwich? Is it a kind of corruption or, you know, the famous Marie Antoinette remark about let them eat cake? This is, is, is this a version of let them eat candy? Is public opinion something that is so easily swayed that if all we have to do is give our voters the equivalent of a little licorice drop and then they will vote for the way we want to go? I, I mean, I think he, the artist, was really problematizing this issue of happiness and public opinion. And I don't, I don't mean to say that, you know, that you're not, that you're aware of that, but um, not aware of that. But again, as I look at it, as I look at this image or in the gallery, the last thing we see in the gallery, it really reminds me of some kind of oil spill. It just seems like a toxic sludge just kind of coming out of the corner of the wall, spreading into our space. So I find it actually less a happy image than very much a, a misery image, social misery image. And just two other examples of consumption or aborted consumption within this show. Uh, well, I guess I won't talk about this. But I think that, that Mac image, the joy of Calvin, I think that's a brilliant image that, of course, I'd never seen before, and I guess it had not, it was sort of redone. The artist redid it for this show. But it's a mirror, but it's a very fragmented, fractured mirror. So it's, there's a kind of inherent frustration within it because you are standing there. And you know how when you're, nobody's looking, you're like in front of a mirror, you're kind of checking yourself out or, or you know, things so like, do I have lettuce on my teeth or something? You can't do that in front of this image. It, it sort of splits the personality into multiple fragments, as does uh, Marina Abramovich's, um, what's it called? It's called something like Tribute to a Mirror, Cleaning the Mirror. And um, then, of course, the Cindy Sherman. So, so mirroring is, I think, another sub-theme in this show, which I really think is just an extraordinary, uh, brilliant job that the NGG, NGV and, and the Guggenheim have put together. I'm really been wowed by this. Uh, maybe I'll end with this very cheerful <laughs> image of, of Maplethorpe with his death head cane shortly before he died, and then Damien Hirst's $100 million diamond-encrusted uh, death head, which is uh, the latest in contemporary art. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>